Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. This is Steve Robbins. Welcome to the Get It Done Guys Quick and Dirty Tips to Work Less and Do More. I'm here today with New York Times reporter, editor, and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Charles Duhigg, author of The Power of Habit and the just-coming-out Smarter, Faster, Better. Your files, photos, and documents are probably worth more to you than your entire computer. And do you have a backup plan to protect all of them? Acronis is honoring World Backup Day, March 31st, by offering a bonus license of its award-winning Acronis True Image Backup Solution with any purchase. Visit TrueImage.com slash get to learn more about the deal. That's TrueImage.com slash get. Welcome, Charles. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, I've been reading your book and... As I'm sure everyone is telling you, you're a fabulous storyteller, and oh. I now have a phobia of airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> Everything turns out all right in the end of the chapter, so it's <laughs> you don't ah, have to okay. be too concerned. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to start by asking you, so you're talking about smarter, faster, better, and this is basically, these are concepts that can be applied to just about everything in life. What is it? What area of life should we be thinking about as we approach you and approach this book? So, as we're listening even to this podcast, what should we be asking ourselves about? Where can we get the most impact by applying what we're about to hear? Well, I think the 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 answer to that is that a lot of it has to do with helping you realize where you want to be more productive, right? I mean, one of the interesting things that we know from studies is that productivity sense tends to differ from person to person and time of week to time of week. Some people will spend a Wednesday morning and they just want to get their kids dropped off at school so they can get to their desk and start powering through emails, and to them that's productivity. But for other people, productivity might mean that you have enough time and that you're not stressed so you can take your kid to school and have a leisurely walk with them and talk about the day or go for a run. Productivity is different on a Saturday morning than it is on a Wednesday morning. And what, what the, the book is really about is these tactics, these abilities that the most productive people and the most productive companies share that allow them to think a little bit deeper about how they're making choices so that they can recognize what the important priorities are, what the things are that they really want to accomplish versus what in their life simply makes them busy. Ah, can you say a little bit more about the difference between busy and actually accomplishing things? But Because I, I certainly know in my life, there is stuff that I would call busyness, but that also has to get done. Absolutely. And there's stuff that's super important that somehow I never get around to. Well, what's interesting is that 
if you look at the human brain, for millions of years, the ability to multitask, to be busy, was a huge advantage, right? If you're someone who can farm and look for predators at the same time, then you're much better off than someone who can just farm or just look for predators. But, with, but in the last 100 years, and in particular in the last 25 years, as the data revolution has really occurred, as the proliferation of information has expanded exponentially, this ability for us to think about multiple things at once or to do multiple things at once or to be busy it's become a drawback, right? Because now we walk into our offices and we're surrounded by phones buzzing in our pocket and 100 emails coming in during the day and people asking us to go sit in on meetings and asking us if we can chime in on some decision they're making. What the most productive people do, and, and what I did for this book is I went and I talked to about 450 researchers and people who were uniquely productive and companies that were more productive than their industry's norms and their, and their competitors. And what they told me is that the ones who are most get the most done, the ones who make the best choices, they're the people who tend to somehow discipline their thinking just a little bit and say to themselves, I want to focus a little bit better, and how am I going to do that? I want to motivate myself for these tasks that I don't like to do, like you just mentioned, that we all have to do. How do I train my brain to turn on and off my motivation like a switch? People who understand how their brain works and have systems built into their day to help spur the right choices, the right mindsets, those are the ones who end up getting not only the most done, but the most important things done. Ah, so what is one of the habits that these people actually entertain that we could adopt and use for ourselves? Well, one of my favorites is that the people who tend to be able to, um, to focus best are people who are in the habit of t building mental models, right? And we've all heard of this, this phrase, building mental models. But what does it really mean? Well, building a mental model means that we tell ourselves a story about what's going on as it goes on. And as a result, we're practiced and habitually practiced at being able to figure out sort of what we should be focusing on and what we can safely ignore. It's interesting, you know, in the book you had mentioned the airplane incidents. What we find about the best pilots, pilots who are particularly skilled at paying attention to which information is critical and which information they can safely ignore, particularly during emergency situations, they're people who tend to tell themselves stories as things happen around them. Firefighters are actually the same way. One of the things that they found is that the best firefighters are the ones who enter a room and before they look around the room that's on fire, they think to themselves, what do I expect to see? Well, I expect to see flames in the corner and I expect to see the, the stairway burning. And if they look over and the stairway isn't burning exactly the way that they had anticipated, that sets off an almost subconscious warning sign that they ought to pay attention to that stairway because there's something there that might be dangerous. We can all get into this habit of working on kind of just telling ourselves stories about what's going on as it goes on. And study after study shows that that helps us train our focus to pay attention to what's important and to safely ignore what might be distracting. Now, the example you just gave of the firefighter, it sounded like that wasn't just a story of what was going on at the moment, but that was a story that was interleaving, here's where I am and here's what I expect to be going on, and then matching the expectation against the reality. 
That's exactly right. And in fact, you can kind of almost train your near subconscious to do that. You know, one of the things I was, as I was talking to researchers about this, one of them said, look, tomorrow morning, I want you to run an experiment. Um, I live in Brooklyn and I work in Manhattan. And he said, when you ride the subway into work, but you can do this in the car also, instead of checking your smartphone or thinking about like, you know, all the stuff that you want to get done, just for a moment, try and visualize your day hour by hour. Right? This should only take like five or six minutes. It's not, it's not a tough task. But try and just visualize what's going to happen in the first hour. What do you think is going to happen in the second hour, in the third hour? When you go into that meeting, what are you hoping you walk out of that meeting having accomplished? Are you, are you going to spend 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock doing emails? Or are you going to turn off your emails so that you can focus on, a, on writing a memo? And what's fascinating is when I called him, so I did this. I, on the subway, I closed my eyes and I kind of visualized my day. And when I called him later at the end of that day, I, he asked, you know, how did it go? And I said, this was fantastic. It made a huge difference. And, and the truth is that the reason why it's so impactful is because we need to train our near subconscious to automatically pick up on what's important and what isn't. And the way that we do that is by visualizing what our day is going to be. Interesting. Now, it seems to me that in today's age of the smartphone and the iPad and the tablet, it's very easy if you have a free couple of seconds, instead of spending it creating a mental model of what you expect to happen and then finding out how good your mental model is and how you can control it, it's easy to go into a purely passive mode where you just go on Facebook and you read whatever articles people happen to post, where you're not giving any thought to generating a mental model. Instead, you're simply passively accepting whatever's coming your way. Do you think this has gotten better or worse because of technology? How can and should we fight it? I think in many ways it's gotten worse. I, you know, one of the interesting things is that when we look at people who are, who are more productive than their peers and how they generate mental models, one of the things that they do is they they put what are known as contemplation devices in their day, right? They have a habit of taking a couple of minutes in the morning to sort of close their eyes and think about their day. Or when they're standing online, when we would normally be bored, they, they try and visualize what's going to happen that evening or the rest of the week. Now think about the last time you were standing on a line, right? It, it used to be that it was insanely boring to stand on a line, but now we're bored for you know all of seven seconds, and then we pull the phone out of our pocket, and we start looking at the internet or checking if we got any emails recently. There's, there's a huge amount of value that comes from having moments when you're a little bit bored, when you allow yourself to daydream or to let your thoughts move a little aimlessly. And the problem is that we're surrounded now by so many things that can occupy our attention that unless we program these contemplation moments, these contemplation devices into our life, we tend to think less and react more. Ah, and we don't want to think less and react more. We want to think less and actually have a better life because of it. Uh, Sorry. Or or, Or we want to work less. We want to think more. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we want to work less and think more, right? We just want to push ourselves to be a little bit more contemplative, to just get half an inch deeper into thinking about what, what are the right priorities? What is the wise choice? How do I design my life in a way that I'm not reacting to everyone else's demands, but instead I'm pursuing what I think is important? Mm-hmm. Well, part of that, I'm sure, if you think that, question, you might think, okay, well, I know exactly precisely what's important. I'm going to go do it in the face of external evidence that it might be the wrong thing or not. 
Because let's say I'm someone who's a real fan of closure, and I like to know the right answer, and once I've got the right answer, darn it, that's what I'm going to go do. Is this a good thing, a bad thing? Well, I think within within reason, it's a great thing, right? In fact, there's within psychology, there's this thing known as the need for closure scale. It's a test. You, if you Google it, you can you can you can take the test and you can figure out how much you need closure. And what they found is that the most successful people they love a certain degree of closure, right? When they're when they're taking this test, that they they say, I like people who can make decisions. I like to be organized. I like to have friends who make plans and keep them. But then you start asking those same people, particularly the most successful people who like to be organized, well, what does your office look like? Is it, is it perfectly clean or is it messy? And they say, well, it's a little bit messy, right? I like to be organized, but my desk is a little bit messy. And tell me about your friends. You say you like friends who can make plans and keep them, but do you have any friends that are kind of flighty? And they say, yeah, you know, I've got a couple of friends who I really like, and they're a little bit flighty. Because what happens is that this need for cognitive closure, it can become, it's something that allows us to, to end endless debates, to, to be organized, to want to find an answer and act on it. But if it's too strong, if we chase closure at the expense of common sense, then we start making bad decisions. And so in many ways, life is about, and making good decisions is about, finding ways to seek out and encourage that need for closure, to make decisions and to not constantly second-guess ourselves, but to also build in systems into our lives where we take a step back and we say, look, I just want to make sure, am I making the right choice here? Like, is, is there another decision I could be making that's even better? Should I reopen this to a little bit of debate? What's a device that I could use to do that or that our listeners could use to do that? One of my favorites is actually to-do lists. Um, so if you think about a to-do list, a to-do list is actually a contemplation device. It's a system for helping us organize our thoughts and try and figure out what our priorities ought to be. Now, most people probably write to-do lists, or a certain number of people write to-do lists the way that I did before I started reporting this book, which is that you have a couple of like big goals, right? And you put them at the bottom of your page because they, they seem, it's like the type of thing you want to do, do over the next week. Uh, I want to start training for a marathon. I want to start dieting so I can lose 30 pounds. And then at the top of your to-do list, you just start jotting down a bunch of other stuff. And, and maybe at the very top of the page, you put some easy things because it feels so good to sit down and be able to cross off those things, right? Right? Sometimes when I, when I used to write my to-do list, I would actually write at the top of the page something I had already done because it felt so good to sit down and cross it off as soon as I got to my desk in the morning. But when I talk to a psychologist, what they say is, that's exactly the wrong way to write a to-do list. That's not using a to-do list for productivity. That's using a to-do list for mood repair. You're using it to make yourself feel better. The right way to write a to-do list is that you take those big important goals your biggest ambition, and you put it at the top of the page. Now, this is known as a stretch goal, right? And by, by forcing us to put it at the top of the page, it's making us ask ourselves, like, what do I really want to get done this week? What's my top priority? Am I choosing the right priority? Or am I putting something at the top of the page that's not really that important? But the problem with a big stretch goal is that it's so overwhelming that you don't know where to start. And so what all the research says is that underneath that stretch goal, that thing that reminds me what my biggest ambition is, underneath, I need a system to help me take a part of that and break it into a plan. And one of the systems that, that 
psychologists in particular recommend is SMART goals, right? And it's called SMART just because it's easy to remember. Because I, I take something, some component of this big goal, and I try and figure out specifically, what do I want to get done this morning? How am I going to measure success? Is it achievable? Is it something that I can actually do? And if it is achievable, how do I make it realistic? There's the R in SMART. Hey, do I need to turn off my email for an hour and a half? Do I need to close my door so no one bothers me? What's the timeline? the T that I'm going to assign to this particular like sort of smart plan. Now, when you do a to-do list like that, and I actually do this every morning, what you have at the end of the process, it only takes about five or six minutes, is at the top of my page, I've identified what my most important priority is for the day or for the week. And then underneath it, because I have specific, measurable, actionable, I have the system that I've gone through for how I'm going to start I have a plan. I know exactly what to do. I don't have to make a decision when I sit down at my desk in the morning. That's how you overcome this need for cognitive closure and give yourself a plan, but at the same time, force yourself to think a little bit more. Am I making the right choice? Is the, is the stretch goal at the top of my page, is it really the most important thing? And would you do this every day so that every day you're coming back and revisiting your stretch goal and revisiting your plan just to make sure I that it's still... I actually do. I actually do. So what I do is, is, um, is every evening before I go to bed, and literally this takes like three minutes, right? It's not like, it's not a, it's not a big task because I'm kind of in the habit of it now, is I look, at my, I look at my list from that day and I look at the smart goal uh, or the stretch goal at the top of my page and I ask myself like... A, have I gotten closer to this big ambition? And B, is this the right ambition? And if it is, then I just flip the page and I write that, that goal again, that stretch goal at the top of my page. And then I say, okay, how am I going to start tomorrow morning? Specifically, what am I going to do? How am I going to measure whether I'm successful? Is this achievable? If it is achievable, how do I make it realistic? Do I need to turn off my email? What's the timeline that I'm going to assign to this first step? And what's kind of magical about it is that like, when I get into the office the next morning and I sit down, I look at that to-do list and I just know exactly what to do right away, right? I forced my brain through a system to contemplate a little bit about what my biggest ambition is and how I'm going to get started on it. And then once I get that task done, and usually it's a, it's a bigger task, right? It's something that takes a couple of hours. Once I get that task done... I can go and I can sort of say, okay, so what's the next subtask, right? Keeping in mind that I have this stretch goal, that I have this big ambition. What's the next step along the path to get to that stretch objective? And it makes it much easier to figure out what the right priorities are. Nice. So if you're going to write a book, for example, then your stretch goal is write a book and the plans on any given day might be something like call a couple of agents and pitch an idea to them or write a chapter of the book or go and do the following three interviews to collect material. Am I understanding that right? That's exactly right. Or it might be that my stretch goal for this week is get chapter two done. And my smart plan for tomorrow morning is a system to take the, take the first 90 minutes of my day and look up three papers and call the authors to try and figure out if any of them are the right expert to talk to. Right? You're exactly right. That's the, that's the big idea, is that Typically, we, we fall into this reactive mindset where we put these small little tasks on our page and then it feels so good to cross them off that we do small and consequential thing after small and consequential thing. You want your to-do list to be something that forces you to think, what is, the, what is my biggest goal for this week? What is my biggest goal for tomorrow? What is my biggest goal for this month or this year? 
Because simply the act of thinking about it and then breaking it down into something that I can actually do a plan to get started, that's oftentimes all it takes to be able to to start the day right and to start running in the right direction. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. One of the things that we talked about prior to the interview, was the whole notion of innovation. And I know that a lot of people, the big stretch goals that they have, either at work or in their personal life, might involve being really creative or coming up with a new idea for a business or a product if they're an entrepreneur, for the way to do something at work if they work for a corporation, for even some type of nonprofit to start, or a project to do for their local community group. And it really requires coming up with something fundamentally new. And you address this in the book, and you you seem to claim that innovation is not this magical spark that simply hits us if we're blessed by the gods, but there are some methodical things that you can go about to generate creative ideas and to do things that haven't been done before. That's exactly right. And one of my favorite examples of this is the making of Frozen the movie, right? Everyone's familiar with the movie Frozen. It, it, it's the, you know, a blockbuster. It was uh, the highest grossing animated film of all time. But what most people don't know is that Frozen was on the brink of catastrophe until literally just weeks before it came out. And what was going on was that they had to speed up the process of making the movie. Most movies have five years when they're at Disney to get made. Frozen, because another film had fallen through, only had two years. And the filmmakers, the entire time, were saying to themselves, how do we be creative on demand, right? We've only got two years. We have to come up with all these clever ideas and creative plot lines. How do we do that so fast and so productively? And now, luckily, what they had was... They had the Disney system. And what the Disney system says is creativity isn't about a tortured genius sitting in a room and waiting for some type of brainstorm. Creativity is about building the right process. And that if you have the right process, anyone can be creative. And they can be creative on demand. And the process at Disney and many other places is built around going back to what you know. Take the things that you already know work 
and try and put them together in new ways. Now, for the example of Disney, what ended up happening in Frozen was that when they were all panicking, one of the filmmakers came in, the head of the studio, and he said, look, this is what we know as a company. We know princesses. We know princess stories. We've been telling princess stories for over 70 years. We're Disney. But princesses on its own isn't enough. We need something else, something we know really well, to put it with. Now, for Frozen, they actually had an unusually large number of women working on that project. It was actually the, one of the directors was the first female director in Disney's history. And as they're sitting around and they're trying to figure out, what do we pair with princesses? What's this idea that will kind of generate some type of creative spark? One, someone sitting at the table says, well, you know, the other thing that we know is we know sisters, right? Everyone at this table, we have sisters or we're a sister ourselves. And we know that the thing that's interesting about sisters is it's not like there's usually in real life one good sister and one bad sister. It's that sisters are both kind of equally screwed up and awesome and that they fight with each other, but then they make friends again. So what if we took these two ideas? What if we took the idea of princesses and we took the idea of sisters and we put them together? And if we did that, then instead of having a prince come and save the princess, we could have two princesses who are sisters who save each other. In fact, we could make the prince the bad guy and not reveal that to the end. And that's Frozen. But it only works because they had a process in place where they had filmmakers saying, let's look at what we know and let's try and put these ideas that we know work together in new ways and everyone will think that it's creative. So how could I do that in my own life? I have to write an article next week, or in fact, I have to write a podcast script, let's say. <laughs> what would I do to start coming up with ideas? Well, I think what you should first of all do is you should think about, okay, so what are the, my favorite podcasts that I've ever recorded? Or what are my favorite podcasts that I've ever listened to? Right? So, so there's probably a couple of them out there. Uh, maybe there's a cooking podcast that you particularly like. That you love hearing them talk about food. And then, and then you can also think to yourself, you know, I love this cooking podcast, but I also really love shows like Radiolab, these, these shows that look at neurology and try and figure out why we do what we do because of how our brain brain works. So, so what if I took the idea of cooking and the idea of neurology and I put them together and I said, why, why do we like the foods we like? What's happening in our brain when we eat sugar versus when we eat broccoli? How do kids know that they should like sweets and not like vegetables? Mm -hmm. Now, that sort of sounds like a creative idea for a podcast, right? That sounds like a creative way to find a solution. But but it's not really creative. It's, it's really just two ideas that you know you like put together in a new way. Since one of the themes of my podcast is zombies, as soon as you said cooking, podcast, and neurology, <laughs> I'm just saying I went one particular place. Well, what's interesting is, is that like, writing this chapter has actually been very helpful to me as a father. Because, um, you know, my kids constantly ask me to tell them stories before we go to bed. And I actually think it's just a delaying device for, um, for falling asleep. But, you know, it's hard to come up with stories on demand. I used to, like, struggle to, like, figure out, like, what new story I could tell them. Until someone told me, like, this is the Disney method. And I started realizing, oh, I can do the same thing with my kids. So now every night, I just take some fairy tale that all of us know, right? Cinderella or Snow White or something that, like, is kind of like this well-established 
tale that we've all heard a thousand times that my kids have heard a thousand times. And instead, what I do is I situate it in the Star Wars universe. So when I tell them about Cinderella, it happens on the ice planet of Hoth. Or when I tell them about Snow White, all the characters' names are changed, and it happens on, on some swamp planet where Yoda lives. And my kids love these stories. They're like captivated. They think that I'm the most creative dad on earth. But it's because even though they've heard those stories before, simply putting it in a new setting, that makes it seem creative and new. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. I'm just thinking, I loved Sophie's choice. Now, how could I tell that to my kids before bedtime? <laughs> well, you know, if you've got two of them, you can start it by saying, <laughs> remember a couple of years ago, kids, I had to decide which of you was going to get ice cream. <laughs> right. Um, oh, you're good at this. You, you, you caught up. Uh, well, we're approaching the end of our time, so I wanted to know, is there anything that you particularly want to say to people in terms of skills to develop or places of their, in their life to concentrate? If you just had one word of advice that people should leave with, if nothing else, what should we take yeah. away? So I think that there is this one idea, which is basically there is this cultural myth that the most productive people are productive because they're smarter than everyone else or because they went to better schools or they work for big fancy companies that give them you know, free lunches and let you do your dry cleaning at, at the office. And it turns out that's completely wrong. In fact, the most productive people, they tend to come from some type of background where they weren't elite. Either they had hardships growing up, or they, they didn't go to the best schools, or they work for companies that are the underdogs and ended up coming from behind. They were people who couldn't afford to simply be reactive. They had to learn about how their brain works. Most importantly, they had to structure their days and their thinking in ways that let them think just a little bit deeper, to think about, how am I focusing Am I choosing the right goals? How am I, how am I f choosing my goals in a way that actually reminds me what's most important and prioritizing correctly? How do I run my team? And it's this thinking, this little additional pressure on trying to t take a half, a half more step. That's what makes people more productive. And so for everyone who's listening, the best thing I can tell you is it does not matter what your life has been like up to now. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how frustrated you sometimes get. You can become more productive. You can go after the goals that are most important to you. The key is learning how to push yourself to just think in the right way so that you're in control of your choices, so that you're making decisions instead of reacting and just being busy because that's what the world pushes you to do. Thank you very much, Charles. I appreciate it. And where can they find you? I know your book is is Smarter, Faster, Better, and it's going to be out next week. I in fact, by the time this airs, I believe it's going to be out. It's yeah. And, the, the book's actually out. It came out two weeks ago. And oh, the, um, really? yeah. They, so so folks can find me online if they if they Google Smarter, Faster, Better, or I'm at charlesduhig.com. Um, if they just type New York Times productivity into Google, I think um, I think I come up pretty pretty quickly. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, sir. And I hope that the, the rest of your life is smarter and faster and better than you can even imagine. It. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Thanks for having me.
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.